Thank you, Jacob. It's good to be with you today. What a blessing it is to remember that we do need the Lord, that our position of neediness and submission is, as we worship, we begin to recognize that's where we need to be. We come before Him, realizing there's no good thing in our own selves, only what Christ has put in, that there is no hope for salvation apart from His graciousness and constant support and on, this, on uh, making intercession for us before the Lord. So it's the right place to be, and then when we come and we're ready to read the Word, then we're ready to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so that's what we're going to do today, and I'm glad that you're with us. If you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are in now this last chapter of this first letter to Timothy. I'd like to read this last chapter completely, really whet our interest in the passage. It's going to deal with a number of things. It's going to deal with proper conduct in the public square, just in general, and proper attitudes towards those who cause trouble. Paul's going to uh, talk about the conduct of a true believer. He's going to talk about uh, appropriate attitudes concerning wealth. And, and so he will remind Timothy then at the end at the church, at the close of this letter of its main job. So it takes in a big swath of topics, not unlike perhaps a letter you've written. You're writing to someone, addressing a certain issue, and then right before you close, oh, I forgot this, and make sure you remember this, and this is a certain thing that I want to, to think about. And so much like that, Paul is doing that. I want you to read together. We'll read uh, chapter 6, verse 1 through verse 21. Starts this way, all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Verse 2, those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they're brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. Verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, verse 4, he is conceited understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, verse 5, and constant friction between men of depraved minds, deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Verse 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Verse 7, for we have brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food, verse 8, and covering, with these we shall be content, but those, verse 9, who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For sin, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Verse 11, but flee from these things, you, man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testifies the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Verse 14. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 15, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, verse 16, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Verse 20, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, verse 21, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Stop right there. 
obviously a very broad number of topics. I'm excited to teach through it with you. It's going to deal with a lot of things right where we are. I'm uh, just rejoicing. It is what it is. As we come to these passages, they are in line for us to teach through them. So many times very appropriate, I think, for us, even if the, uh, the, uh, many of the comments in first service were that way. This is what I was dealing with. I was been in this situation. So the Lord does that in a timely manner, and so we're grateful for that. Here's a question. Do you ever feel overlooked, overworked, overregulated, under-leisured, under-benefited? Take heart. This notice was found in the ruins of a London office building dated 1852. Number one, the firm has reduced the hours of work and the clerical staff will now only have to be present between the hours of 7 a.m. and 6 p.m. weekdays. Number two, clothing must be of sober nature. Clerical staff will not deport themselves in raiment of bright colors, nor will they wear hose unless they are in good repair. Number three, overshoes and top coats may not be worn in the office, but neck scarves and headwear may be worn in inclement weather. Number four, a stove is provided for the benefit of the clerical staff. Coal and wood must be kept in the locker. It is recommended that each member of the clerical staff bring four pounds of coal each day during the cold weather. Number five, no member of the clerical staff may leave the room without permission from the supervisor. Number six, no talking is allowed during business hours. Number seven, the craving for tobacco, wine, or spirits is a human weakness and as such is forbidden to all members of the clerical staff. Number eight, now that the hours of business have been drastically reduced, the partaking of food is allowed between 11.30 and noon, but work will not on any account cease. Number nine, members of the clerical staff will provide their own pens. A new sharpener is available on application to the supervisor. Number 10, a supervisor will nominate a senior clerk to be responsible for the cleanliness of the main office and the private offices. All boys and juniors will report to him 40 minutes before prayers and will remain after closing hours for similar work. Brushes, brooms, scrubber, and soap are provided by the owners. And number 11, the owners recognize the generosity of the new labor laws, but will expect a great rise in output of work to compensate for these near utopian conditions. And all of a sudden, your job is a lot better than you thought it was. One of the consistent contexts of Scripture in both the Old and New Testament is the slave-master relationship. And this servant-master social structure that we find in the Old Testament and the New Testament is not the same as the slavery that's part of American history. In fact, you'll find as you witness to scoffers, which I find that I often do, I attract them, it's not unusual for the underinformed to throw the slave master teachings from the scripture into my face as if it gives God and everyone who's redeemed a black eye. Of course, they are using a modern understanding of the abusive and racist slave master and utterly unacceptable slavery of American history based upon an appalling racial discrimination, extremely abusive in most cases and creating a false social division that still generates a lot of conflict in our nation. That kind of terrible national blight was not the kind of situation in slavery in the Middle East or in the Roman world at that time. There were certainly abuses, but there are abuses in every economic system, and the abuses are the issue, not the system. And keep in mind, that is exactly why Paul is addressing it here. But in its proper biblical framework, this relationship described here has a lot in common with and closely parallels the modern employee-employer relationship. Now, there isn't enough time in our current study to cover the context of slavery completely and comprehensively from the Word of God. That study alone would take months to get through, and there are thousands of verses we'd have to look at. However, I think it's important to get a brief overview to show the significant differences between our modern thinking and understanding and what Paul is saying here for obvious reasons. And we find that a lot, right? Because the letter won't mean anything if we don't have the right context. If we're transplanting our modern thoughts backwards into the text, then we're coming away with a false understanding, just like we did with alcohol. When we transfer our modern thoughts about alcohol back into the text, we come with a wrong understanding of the text. And so, again, it's about understanding what did it mean to the first readers. That's what it still means now, and we need to get to that point. And that's where we'll have our proper application. Now, Paul is saying this for obvious reasons because uh, there are a number of abuses going on during, in the church, and we're going to see what they are. But let's go back. I'd like to read uh, the first, verse, first two verses, which are going to focus uh, for us today on what we're going to read and what we're going to understand. Look at verses 1 and 2 
All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Verse 2, those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved, teach and preach these principles. Now, there are a couple of words I think that we need to find those definitions so we understand what they mean in the proper context. First one is uh, slaves, the Greek adjective douloi, and here it's in the plural. It is translated 118 times in the New Testament as servant. It's translated bond six times, and doulos is in the singular. There's about 25 times the verb douloi is in the New Testament. So about 150 times that word or some derivative of that word is found in the New Testament. So it is a very common, familiar, and useful term. And just obviously, it designates a person who is in submission, in subjection to someone else. And in fact, in the scriptures, most of the time, doulos had a long-term submission connected with it, a long-term sort of responsibility for obedience to a master. And then that's the other word we need to look at. The word masters is the Greek noun despotes. That's where we get our English word despot. And in the modern connotation, it would probably mean someone who may be severe, who may be dominating, who may be harsh, narcissistic in their approach to being over others. But in the New Testament time, the word did not carry that connotation. The word master just referred to one who had unrestricted, unrestrained, complete authority. It's used for identification. It's the one who is the boss. And now the word Lord or kurios is similar, sometimes used as a synonym, and it just means supremacy, he to whom a person or thing belongs, about which he has the power of deciding. And just as a footnote, despotase is not used in relation to a husband and wife relationship. Kurios is. Despotes is not used of a father over their children. Kurios is. Kurios is the most common uh, used uh, description of Christ. It's a proper noun because there was graciousness in his rulership. It's a much broader, much wider uh, oversight that's referred to here. But obviously, as it refers refers to Christ, he's obviously the owner. He's the one who has control of individuals, the power of deciding. In government, we see the word kurios is the word for sovereign. It's the word for prince. It's used for chief. It is used to refer to the Roman emperor. It's the title of honor. It's expressive of respect and of reverence with which servants salute their masters. They recognize that and use that word. And this is usually how Jesus is referred to as kurios. It's a synonym, but with an idea of a highest office, higher, more gracious office. However, there are places where Jesus is referred to as despotes. There's a couple of places I'm going to give you. There are many, but again, we're going to limit our, our, uh, our illustrations so that we have time to deal with our text. But here in 2 Timothy 2.21, it says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be, it says, a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the despotes, the master, Jesus himself, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord, kuria. So both words are used there, used as a proper noun, from a pure heart. So you can see both words are used of Jesus. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, we see a very similar uh, situation. False prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce their destructive heresies, even denying, here it is, despotes, the master, that's Jesus, who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So the word master, despotes, emphasizes absolute, unrestricted, unlimited authority. And that's why it is a good parallel to an employer-employee situation. Now, you have one who is a despotes, who has the authority to direct the employee to do what he wants done, and he does it. And then you have the employee who is the doulos, who must do what he is told or lose his position. And that was basically the economic setup in the Middle East and in the Roman Empire. And there are a couple of good illustrations of this situation, and we'll look at them briefly and then move on and really grasp the understanding then that Paul would have the church to know 
in his instructions because obviously it's not a history lesson for us. It is application, which will be important, and I think that you'll see how clear that application is. And so the point of these first two verses is going to have a connection to your reality. But for us, when we think about the words master and slave in the context of American history, if that's how you're looking at it still, then you're not going to come away with the right understanding here in these passages. Now, I'd like you to hold your finger here, and I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 8. Will you do that? Matthew chapter 8 and verse 5. And then we're going to be in Luke 17, and then there will be one more spot. So you're going to be turning around a few places. And I want you to see these because I want you to see them in their context. That we're using the same words and in their relationship to one another. This is going to be instructive. So Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. And again, these are just two or three of 50 we could look at. So uh, these, though, I think uh, give a good understanding. It's one of my favorite. Uh, these two first ones are two of my favorite in, um, in the Word of God concerning uh, faith and all of that. But anyway, Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, employing him, imploring him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, and here's the second time, Lord and Lord. He's used the word kurios two times. So he recognizes his position underneath that of Jesus. Jesus is the kurios. He's the sovereign. He's the prince. He's the, that's the title of honor, expressive of respect and reverence. Servants salute their masters with this title. Surturian knows what it means to serve. Already he places himself in that servant position, although he is over other people. Now we're going to see he knows what it means to serve. And see that in just a minute. He says this, Lord, Kurios, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my doulos will be healed. Now, here is a great understanding of the word doulos. Look at verse 9. For I also am a man under authority. So the centurion knows what it means to serve. Not only is he under Jesus' authority, he's under those who are above him in rank. I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. So he also knows what it means to be a despotes or a kurios for that matter. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, he gets done saying that, and Jesus says these words. He says, now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Now, let's pause right there. Why did he say all of that? I mean, here is a, here is a, he's a centurion who is not a Jew, who Jesus recognizes as having greater faith than the Jews who should have greater faith than those who are non-believers. He says that because the centurion, number one, called him the correct name recognized he was under him, recognized that as he has authority over people to say, go and come, Jesus has ultimate authority over all things, including the sickness and everything else. So he just says, just say the word and it'll be done because all things are your servants. That's basically what the centurion says. That's remarkable, isn't it? That's precisely where we all should be, right? We, we would recognize Jesus as Lord. In fact, you can't come to faith unless you recognize Jesus as Lord, Romans 10, 9 and 10. But what does that mean exactly? That means he has all authority over you and has the right to say come or go or do or do not, right? And that it, in, in the middle of our lives and the difficult things that we have that we're bringing to him in prayer, he has all authority over that. And we can just say to him, Lord, your will be done. Why? Because first of all, he can do his own will and he doesn't need your help. And number two, when he does that will, that's the best for everybody involved, right? And we trust that. So that's a, that's a remarkable place to be. But I like that because it gives all the different uh, echelons of, of authority all packaged in. He knows what it's like to be under authority. He knows how to be in authority. But he knows Jesus is all authority. So it gives us this idea uh, that there's a nobility there, uh, an important part, a factor that plays into the Christian life. Now Luke 17, 7, this is another great illustration, one of my favorites. And, and here, uh, again, it's, it's uh, I think, very instructive for us about how we serve Christ. And he uses this illustration, but it's one that it could commonly take place 100 times a day. In Luke chapter 17, verse 7, he says this, Which of you, having a slave plowing, there's the word doulos, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? And that's a rhetorical question. And what's the answer? No one. But will he not say to him, verse 8, prepare something for me to eat 
and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And there's doulos in the verb form. And afterwards you may eat and drink. Verse 9, he does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? And what's the rhetorical answer? No. Verse 10, so you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We've done only that which we ought to have done. Now, he's first talking about an agrarian principle. He's talking about a regular slave master, employee-employer relationship. And then he brings it right into the spiritual realm, doesn't he? So he doesn't leave it there. He uses that as an illustration to help them learn what it means to be a faithful servant. So what does that mean? It means that we have a Lord who tells us what to do. And when we faithfully do it day in and day out, should we expect him to just throw a big party and say, hey, you were such a good servant. I'm going to serve you. What's the answer to that? The answer is no. See, and that puts our ego in check, doesn't it? That helps us when we faithfully serve day in and day out to recognize that we are unworthy servants. What does that mean? It just means that we're unworthy of what Christ has done for us and we've only done what he expected us to do for we don't expect any extra thanks for that. And that's a good perspective to keep. But it also gives us that echelon of authority and those who are in submission. And, and Jesus just says, listen, you know this from your own experience. You may have a servant. He's employed by you. He's paid to do a duty. You don't thank him and bend over backwards to serve him. You expect him to do his duty. And when he comes in from working outside and he's supposed to take care of your dinner, you're waiting there for him to change and he gets ready and he serves your dinner. And then when you're all done, then he can eat. And that duty is what he has to do and he has to continue to do it. And doulos then is one who does his duty. He functions within the framework of a prescribed duty assigned to him by someone else and he has to do it. And you say to him, if you look at the previous illustration, you say to him, go and he goes. You say to him, come and he comes. You say to him, do this and he does it. It's an accepted economic system. In fact, it's even, and you can see this, an honored system. There were, of course, abuses to that system, which the Lord addressed, and the abuse came in the evil of the hearts of the people in the system. And there are evil-hearted people abusing any and every system of employment. And you may be under one of them now. But mark it. It's telling that Paul himself is proud to be identified as a doulos of Jesus Christ. Same exact word, same exact understanding. Peter also says he is a doulos of Jesus, as does James and Jude. So there's something inherent in being a doulos that was honorable, that was a, a equivalent to something very good and very right. And so it's interesting and important that there was a connection to doulos that was good enough to make it analogous to spiritual bondage to the living God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so keep that in your mind. And what it's also telling for us too, and this is very important, there's never a statement in the Old Testament telling masters to let their slaves go. And there's never a statement telling slaves to seek their freedom. Now, the Lord put a limit on the time that Jewish slaves could serve their Jewish masters. And that was six years. And in the seventh, they were released. And not only were they released, they were released with enough to make another start. And there was also a limit to the time non-Jewish slaves could serve Jews. And then they were to be released. And I think it's telling too what we don't see is the Apostle Paul or any of the other apostles making these types of statements because this system is not the system that comes to our minds when we think about these words. So we need to set all those modern thoughts aside and recognize that this passage most closely resembles the employer-employee relationship that we're very familiar with. And so it's appropriate then that we deal with it like that, which is why we've titled it Good Employees Adorning the Gospel. Now, we're going to see that there is this direct connection between serving Christ and working hard, between serving Christ and being a good boss. Now, just a few more points, and I think this will help us kind of sort this out. It's been estimated that there were between 50 and 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Now, that's a big geographical area, so they're spread out all over the place. But, and, and that, and many is perhaps one-third of the populations of large cities, such as Rome and Corinth and Ephesus, were slaves. Some in the Ephesian church uh, were slave owners, probably quite a few, as was Philemon in the Colossian church. In Rome, becoming a slave was commonly used as a means of gaining Roman citizenship and gaining entrance into society. Many sla li slaves lived separately from those who were over them. 
And being a slave did not indicate one's social class. Slaves were regarded uh, regularly, accorded social status of their owners. And I, I think you can see this, right? You can work for someone and be in the top 1%, right? You can have to do exactly what your boss says and you be, may be in the top 1% of income. And I think, I think a great illustration I think we can all understand is professional athletes. They'll sign a contract to make $250 million in the next four years. And they, in essence, are, are giving themselves to that ownership, to that front office, to do and require from them whatever they require. They don't get to do whatever they want, do they? I mean, if you looked at them, you think that they get to do whatever they want, and that's how they act. But in reality, they're, they're in a doulos relationship. They've got times they've got to show up and work out. They're going to have times to show up for camp. They've, I mean, this is not optional for them. They're going to have to do certain things, performance and, and all that, that have to be part of what they do. So I think you can understand that, that in, in the Roman times and, and in the Middle East, uh, you couldn't tell what social class you were. You may be a slave and you may be in a very high social class. From outward appearances, it was typically impossible to distinguish a slave from a master. Slavery was often preferred to freedom because of the security it offered. Many of you have been entrepreneurs. You understand what it means to start a business and you know the risk of putting yourself out there. You're assuming all that risk. Nobody's taking over for you if you're sick. And nobody's doing your job if you can't do it. If you do well, everybody under you does well. If you don't do well, nobody does well. And you could lose your shirt and everything else. And so we understand how this all works, right? And so sometimes having a job is much more stable than being the one who provides the jobs for people. A slave could be a merchant, he could be a businessman, he could be a manager, even a government official. I'm going to give you one more illustration of that in Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Look there if you would. You're just right now in Luke 17, so back up just a little bit. And um, you'll see this one. Luke 16, verse 1. And this will give you the idea of that social structure, okay, as you think about this. And you'll see the same words here. So Jesus is teaching again, giving a great illustration here. And he says, Saying to his disciples, verse 1, chapter 16 of Luke, there was a rich man who had a manager. It's oikonomos. This is a house manager. It's a steward. Almost always a slave-master relationship with this. Great responsibilities we see in the illustration. But this oikonomos is also a word that refers to those who lead the church, right? They serve as a table waiter, as a house manager. These are common terms and we understand them. So the rich man had a oikonomos, who's probably a slave-master relationship. Now listen, look at the, look at the, uh, the level of, of uh, how he had achieved in his, in his uh, particular field. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possession. So he's, he's wasting it, he's uh, taking it for himself, whatever it is, he's in trouble. It's come to the master's relation, uh, attention. Now obviously, it had been going on for a little while because it had built up and now it finally come to his attention because you can imagine someone who's squandering probably isn't obvious about it, so it's been going on for a little while. And he called him and he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management for you can no longer be my manager. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master, this is our word, Corios, my master, so he recognizes he's under him, he has the authority, a very high authority to determine what's going to go on. He submits himself there, at least in words. He says, my man, uh, what shall I do since my master, my Corios, is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do. So that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he gets this brilliant idea. Here's what he does. This gives you an idea of how high up in management we, he is. So perhaps uh, this guy, he, this rich man was in, in um, you know, supply chain. Perhaps he, he had a lot of things going on. Perhaps he loaned a lot of money. Perhaps uh, equipment, whatever it was. People, you know, uh, items that were useful for building or for whatever travel. So he, he had a lot of debtors. And so he says, I don't know what I'll do. And so, he, I want to make sure when I don't have a job, I've got some place to live. So he says, he summoned each of his master's debtors, and he's, he begun saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down and write 50. Now that's pretty good, isn't it? That's a 50% discount of what's been owed. You didn't do anything for it, but that tells you how high this guy is, right? This slave is pretty high in this, uh, in this business, he does these things. He can meet with these clients. And perhaps he's been doing this all along. Think Joseph. Think Joseph in Potiphar's house. What does the Lord say about Joseph? Joseph is a slave there, but he managed the entirety of the house of the captain of the guard to the point where the guard didn't even know where his own bread came from. 
That's how faithful he was. That's the idea. That there's a lot of autonomy here. And so he calls in this client. He says, hey, you owe 100, just mark 50. And then verse 7, he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. He said, take your bill and write 80. So, hey, 20% discount right off the top. That's pretty cool. And obviously, you know, it doesn't tell everybody he met with, but he's just going through and he's making sure that when he, he, he is fired, he has a place to stay. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he'd acted shrewdly. Obviously, a shrewd man himself. And he said, hey, that was pretty smart. I mean, obviously, I'm taking a hit, but you did what you had to do to make sure you were taken care of. And then the Lord says this, the sons of this age are more shrewd in their relationship to their own kind than the sons of light. In other words, they know how to manage money and use it for the right purposes, nefarious purposes obviously here, but for those who are believers, they don't understand how to do that because it says later, so that they can, when they die, people who they have used their money to see come to faith will welcome them into their heavenly home. So it's a great illustration. We don't have time for the whole thing because it changes really its track. But these terms are very familiar to us. So I think we can understand them. They describe situations that are common still today. And Paul has to address this issue. And then here's what he says. Now look back at 1 Timothy 6.1. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Verse 2, and those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved, teach and preach these principles. Now, now that you know the underpinnings of all this, the context, then the meaning seems clear now, doesn't it? We're not thinking American slavery. We're thinking this employee-employer relationship, which really describes it much better and it falls into our lap. Verse 1 then deals with those who have masters who have employers uh, who, or, or those employers who are unredeemed. Well, how do we know that? Well, look at verse 2. Those who have believers as their masters. So the first one is just any boss, specifically those who are unredeemed because now he gets specific in verse 2 and says, if you have a boss who's redeemed. So you're dealing in verse 1 then with employers who are unredeemed. So look at verse 1. All who are it says, under the yoke, as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, we know the definitions of the words, and it just says this, all who are under, or as many as, present, active, indicative. If you're employed, this implies to you. So, all who are under, then this word, the yoke, hupo zugos. That's an agrarian term. You may be familiar with it, perhaps. A farming, plowing, it's a pulling implement that linked or hooked, or our term, yoked together, connected them, two oxen or horses together to get more output or have more power, thus able to get more done. So here it's used as an analogy for work. You're yoked together with other people who are employed. Uh, there's an implication you're yoked, yoked together in a, in a real way with those who employ you so that things can get done. Everyone, all those who are working for someone, you're in the doulos position. If someone is your boss, if someone has authority over you, has the right to tell you what to do, and you have to do it to keep your position, then you qualify. So all who are under the yoke are to regard, and this is the verb, hey, genomi, present, middle, imperative. So he's going to give an instruction, but he's giving it right now in the command form. So it's not optional for us, okay? Hey, genomi, present, middle, imperative. It's the hold of you or have an opinion with regard to something. Literally, your thoughts are to be. That's what the word means. And the middle voice, the subject is participating. And that's important. Why? Well, because mostly the excuse for complaining about your boss is he isn't worthy of honor. If he wasn't such an idiot, I would submit to him. But he has no idea what he's doing or he's very unkind or he never shows up or... or ad infinitum, right? So the issue is not based on whether the boss is worthy of honor in your opinion. The issue is you're to have this thought process in advance. And what is the thought process? They are, what opinion or attitude are they to hold? They are to regard their own masters as worthy of honor. And that word honor is the adjective axios, do reward. 
it, the idea is it's the, in the old days when somebody would heft up a money bag and it was heavy so they knew it had value, right? It had weight. That's the idea. So it's different from the word tamao for elders or widows having to do with a fixed value or a price. You have to consider what you have to pay them. That's not the same word. This is you value it as if it were hefty, right? That's the idea. That's the mentality. You're to think this way, see? Your thoughts are to be. And here it has to do with the proper evaluation. So principle number one then for employees, if you, are, if you have someone over you who has the right to tell you what to do, how to do it, you have to go and do it or not keep your position, then your true feelings and your attitude towards your boss is respect. And we'll add this to it because we're going to see this in just a minute. And the outward exhibition of that attitude is to work hard. You have to have already, weigh it out. They are worthy of all honor regardless of what you think they're worth. You have to have that opinion. So that's to be an authentic response. And because Paul had to address this in the church, it was obviously a problem. And because you are a believer, doesn't mean you have a pass on submitting to an unbelieving boss. That's the issue, see. You can have an unbelieving boss over you who is hedonistic, does what he wants, uh, pretty much uses the company to do whatever he wants to do. It's not godly. You don't have the right, according to this passage, to disregard them. You don't have the right to deal disrespectfully with them. You have to have the opinion, hold the opinion that they are worthy of honor. Now, I think the best way to look at this is disrespect. If, if you've ever been in a gym class doing push-ups, you're going to understand this verse, right? So you've got a whole gym floor of people doing push-ups. And the gym teacher is like, up down, up, down. What's going on over here? They're no longer going up and down, right? If you're like me, you're like in the up position. Up, down, up, down, right? Now you're back into it. You're synced up again, right? But you don't, you don't respect him, right? You don't respect her. You don't want to do it, right? And so as soon as they turn away, you're not doing it, right? And then you're doing it and you've got they're so stupid. They don't even know what's going on. Everybody's chuckling themselves, and, right? You, everybody understands this, I think, right? And if you participate at a higher level in athletics, you also understand you have responsibilities, right? I had one of my sons run for liberty. He had obligations on off days to run three miles. Did everybody do it? Who got hurt? Team, right? But so it was on you because you respected your coach and you recognized that he knew what you needed, that you had to put three miles in on your off days, but that's the issue. See, it's a respect given to them whether or not you think they deserve it and you work hard and do the right thing. And so you already, I think, know why this is commanded by Paul. This is so important, right? Um, he says, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. You're going to come, obviously you've got to work hard or you're going to lose your position. You have to come with a true feeling, an authentic response that the boss is worthy of respect and the outward expedition, exhibition of that is the attitude of working hard. And you do that, here it is, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. So principle number two for employees, failure to show the unbelieving boss the proper respect in attitude and work ethic is going to result in the gospel getting a black eye and the name of our Lord maligned. And it's always that, isn't it? There's always instruction for us, but it's always about character and testimony. And so this was likely what was going on here. And so Paul addresses it because misconduct in the workplace would not only hurt the church, but would harm its reputation with those on the outside and limit the spread of the gospel. Because you know what? Disrespect towards those in authority, if you've got that, that's a character problem. And you'll bring it right into the church too. Did you know that? You won't submit to those who are in authority over you in the church and for the same reasons that you think you know better or whatever it is. And so it hurts the church, it hurts the church's testimony, and it hurts the gospel and its ability to go out. If you remember 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, Paul told the church to live peaceful and quiet and godly lives saying this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So in other words, if they lived exemplary lives, the knowledge of the gospel would what? Spread. And in uh, chapter 3, verse 7, remember he said this, of the elders, he must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So in other words, to be spoken well of by the outsiders is essential to the ministry of the gospel, which he's been called to teach. Because if he has a bad reputation of, for those on the outside, 
then the gospel's not going to go out in power, is it? If he knows he's a gambler, if he's a player, or whatever he is, or he's, uh, if he's hard-nosed, he deals with people in a bad way, then that, that reflects badly on Berean. In, in chapter 5, verse 14, we saw this just not that long ago, he counsels young widows to, quote, marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and give the enemy no opportunity for slander. So when people are unruly, when their children are disobedient, the church is slandered, and the gospel loses its power, you see? It just makes sense, doesn't it? Because if the Bible says one thing and we don't do it, then why would anybody be concerned about what we would have to say? Because we don't believe it anyway. And that helps us understand this passage from Paul, written years before to the same Ephesian church. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, see what he says here. He says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. So see the same types of, of language, right? Slave-master relationship, a doulos, despotes relationship, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart. Mark this. As to whom? What's it say? As to Christ. In other words, when you submit to those who are over you, and you back up into our passage, when you have the right attitude and you work hard and you give them honor, you're actually giving it to Jesus. And so it raises the bar, doesn't it? It's the bar of, I'm going to do this because this is what I should do, to I'm going to do this because I'm doing this for Christ. Whatever it is I do, however hard I work, whatever abuse I take, whatever it is that I have to put up with, as I do it correctly, I do it as unto Christ. And here it is, verse 6, not by way of eye service as men pleasers. That's the whole up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, right? Only when the boss is watching. It's like the, the rich man and, his, and, his, uh, and the guy who's taking care of his house. The boss wasn't watching what was going on. He was wasting, the, wasting his resources. That's the issue, see. So you're doing it unto Christ. Not by way of eye service as men please. Not just because he's watching you. But as Mark this, slaves of Christ. So the whole idea of, a, of, a, of a, an employee-employer relationship is now directly parallel to your submission to Christ. In the same way you debate Christ, it's the same way that you work hard. Doing the will of God from the heart. Again, an authentic response. With goodwill, render service, again, as to the Lord. Two times he says it. And not to men. When you're doing it, you're doing it for the, for the business. You're doing it so that it can be profitable. You're doing it so that uh, things can go like they should. But you're actually doing it for the Lord. Knowing, mark this, that whatever good thing each does, however hard you work, however well you do, whatever it is that you're doing for your boss... This he will receive back from the Lord, whether you're slave or you're free. It doesn't matter whether you're in the employer position or the employee position. Whatever it is that you do that's pleasing to the Lord, the Lord pays that back. So that changes the whole dynamic of it, doesn't it? I mean, it, maybe on a day-to-day -day basis, it might not be a tremendous amount easier to deal with a very abusive, hard-nosed <laughs> boss who doesn't know Christ, right? But in the, in the main light of everything, considering the long view for you and who you serve... It can become easier when your response is authentic. And, and beloved, you know, it's, this is repeated many times over and over again, this story about um, an employer who's become skeptical about believers because of their experience with them. Here's one story about two theological students who seem to always be standing around talking about Christ during work hours, especially when the boss Observe one go into the bathroom for 20 minutes, and when the employee emerged, he heard him whisper to his fellow student, I just had the most wonderful time. I read three chapters in the Gospel of John. All right, let's be clear. Three chapters of John in the John on the boss's time doesn't please God and doesn't please your boss. Most, and this is so important, you know, um, the place where we work is for most of us our primary contact to the needy world. And it was that for me in the private sector before the Lord called me into the ministry. It's still that way now. It's my primary contact to a needy world, but it's in a different format. But our workplace is our primary contact in a needy world. Most gospel sharing happens in the workplace. This is where people see what we're really made of because this is where the stress is. It's where most of our energy is expended and they can watch our attitude towards those over us and, and we, what we say under our breath, how we react to injustice and arrogance and ineptitude and most of all, how hard we work. This is it, see? 
Which is why the church is really powerless in very real sense because we've forgotten what our real job is. And so I would ask you as I asked first service, when's the last time you witnessed in your workplace to someone? And if you haven't witnessed, why is that? Is it because your testimony has been so poor that now you feel very, very badly about saying anything about Christ because of all the things that you said before? See? So it's something to think about at precisely what Paul's dealing with here. Now look at verse 2 and we're going to wrap up. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Now, this must not be disrespectful, kataphroneo, it's just a general term for looking down. Again, you know, the phrenetical part is, is the way that you're thinking. You're looking down. You're in your thought life. You're above them. So all action starts with attitude, doesn't it? I mean, the way you're starting to think about somebody, and then that'll work its way out and how you treat them, right? If you're complaining about your wife personally in your own mind, and you're talking badly about self-talk about her, that'll work its way out in what you begin to say and do, won't it? It's the same way for everything. All actions are that way. That it starts as an, act, uh, an attitude, moves to action. So Paul says, must not be disrespectful. It's with the negative particle, present, active, imperative. Again, this is the command. For those who have believing bosses, you are not to entertain an attitude of superiority or looking down on them. And you can imagine this letter where Paul says, in regard to our position in Christ, only compl- uh, complicates it, right? Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that verse has been misused as much as any verse in the Bible. To put women in the pulpit and to to abuse those who are over you because, you know, you're the same, right? To direct the church because you know just as well as those who are over the church. This is where the real rub is. But in particular here, the slave nor free man. There's neither slave nor free. So the believers are working for a believer and they're saying, hey, there's no slave, there's no free, right? We're all equal. And the mutual brotherhood of slave and master had led to an attitude of disrespect. And the believing boss, you know, if he's a hard worker, if he's a businessman, he expects those who work for him to work hard, especially if they are believers, right? He'd be more inclined to, to hire a believer because less baggage is going to come in. And then he would expect the believer to work hard, right? I mean, that would be a common, uh, I think, approach to it, a, greater, a better atmosphere and all that. So he expects those to work for him to work hard, and, and, but what has really happened is they've begun to resent his dominance and resent his expectations because, hey, he's a believer. Why is he, why is he driving me so hard? See? You can see how that can be an attitude and start to show him some disrespect. And beloved, as we've said before, there are no perfect men. There are no perfect women. It's not going to be perfect every time. Every interaction is not going to go perfectly, Okay. But instead of displaying grace and submission, which are the proper attitudes, there's this attitude of entitlement of, you know, I would make a better master than he is. We're both believers. So why does he still tell me what to do like that? See, he has no right to do that because I'm a believer too. I even go to the same church as he goes to or whatever. See, so principle number three, I think for employees, as we pull this out of the verse, God expects an even better service for a believing boss exactly because there's a brotherhood there and a heavenly relationship that will always exist for all eternity. But right now there is an employer, an employee relationship, and in order to honor Christ, we're supposed to respect those boundaries. And there's obviously no room for complaints and no room for disrespect as those are in the command form in both of those situations, to an unbelieving boss and to a believing boss. Mark this, because those who partake of the, of the benefit are believers and beloved. Listen, the Lord knows that you bring benefit to that company, okay? You bring benefit because you're a believer. You bring benefit because your worldview and, and, and your morality, right? You shouldn't be stealing from them, whatever it is. I mean, you bring that there. There's benefit there. But the Lord also recognizes his or her position. There's certainly benefit to the master, to the believing boss having you there. And also, you know, He's trusted the Lord with the risk and the stress and the obligation to provide for those who work for him or her. And catch this, the Lord knows them in that role and loves them because of it. 
God loves them because they provide for the needs of families and communities. He loves them because of what they do. And listen, that flies in the face of a common uh, uh, thing that goes around today. That top 1%, those CEOs, they're wicked, they're evil. They don't deserve to have what they have, right? That's so common. And it's all just based on, it's just based on lust and desire to have and, and envy and all of that, right? I mean, envy and lust and desire to have part of seven deadly sins. Now they look like they're an attribute, right? I mean, he has a lot of money. Yes, he worked hard to get there. Well, you don't know what he did. No, I don't. Neither do you. But the fact that he works hard and then provides a living for tens or hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people is a good thing. Right? He made the money. The Lord doesn't say, and we're going to see in just a little bit in, in chapter 6, the Lord doesn't say, hey, tell those who are rich to get rid of it all because that's, that's not godly. No. Tell those who are rich to be rich in good works and be ready to share. So lay up for themselves what's truly life indeed. You think you've got life now because you're wealthy, but you really don't. So deal with it that way. And so you can see that. Isn't it, you know, capitalism has its problems, right? In every system, there's abuse. But so you address the abuse, not the system, right? Because capitalism in general rewards those who work hard and who are innovative. And maybe you started a business because of your, your ability to think through things. Maybe it's because you have a talent in some area or whatever it is. But it's a good thing that you have people working for you. They have their livings provided for you, for you from them. So it's a great thing. And I think it's important to keep that all in perspective when you hear the culture kind of bombarding you with all this all the time. And back briefly to Ephesians 6, 9, you know, the Lord speaks to masters too, you know, believing masters under this, understand this, and masters, despotes, do the same thing to them, uh, talking about those who are doulos, what? Well, the same thing we just said, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing whatever good thing you do, this you're going to receive back from the Lord, even in your position as an overseer, even your position as a boss, when you do things, when you serve and you provide, the Lord recognizes all of that, you're actually serving him and he pays that all back and there's no partiality in him. So give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. God isn't partial to masters. He's not partial to, uh, to, to doulos. He's not partial to those who are under them. They answer to God. You all answer to God. They serve in their relationship, whether above or below. And over all this then, over all this instruction lies this umbrella. Here again, what is at stake? The same thing that's always at stake. The spread of the gospel, our mission to a lost world. It's always that. The enhancement, the elevation of relationships in the church, a harmony in households, you know, or the work ethic, the attitude of employees towards their employers, the attitude of employers towards their employees, all testify to the world about Christ's reality. That's what it really comes down to. So the unity of purpose of both slave and master, recognizing we serve higher than just the person over us would enable the whole house and all the church to reach out to the lost in a very dynamic way, see? And we'll look at this at another time, but Titus chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, Paul says again, here's Titus in Crete. He's saying the exact same thing to him. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, See, there's no indication whether this is a born-again master or a non-born-again master. Be subject to your master in everything. Whatever, when he says go, go. When he says come, come. When he says do this, do this. When he says don't do that, you don't do that. It's the same thing we just looked at, all those illustrations. To be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, obviously, right? You're a believer. You're not taking things from them, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine. Here it is of God, our Savior, in every respect. When you have a right relationship with those who are over you, you adorn the gospel of God. You put a beautiful necklace on a beautiful thing. See? Working this way, being good employees, catch it, will adorn the doc doctrine of God, our Savior, in every, it says, respect. In every respect, even the hard things, even the difficult things the gospel asks, it adorns those things because you make it look good by doing what you're supposed to do in an unapproachable way. And Paul ends with this. He says, teach and preach these principles. Now, this tells you how important this is, okay? If, if uh, the idea of teaching and exhorting indicates that Timothy has really got to make a major issue out of this. 
We understand that those who are in eldership, that's their main job, preaching and teaching, right? And so Paul says, in essence, to Timothy, he's commanded, he's got to work this into your sermon series, okay? Make sure this gets talked about. This is a problem in the world. It's a problem in the church. There's a great need there. And people were shirking their proper responsibility as slaves to masters who were over them, whether it was an unsaved master or a saved master. It was being handled incorrectly, and it was ruining the church's testimony in the community. And Titus chapter 2, verse 11, says much the same thing. Mark this, beloved, and I'm going to end with this. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. So if you're an employer, if you're an employee, the grace of God has appeared. And if in his grace he has drawn you, you've come to salvation. And if you've come to salvation, it instructs you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Your whole priority system has been shaken up, hasn't it? Whatever it is that you have to do to make a living, to make sure other people can make a living, to do a good job for your employer, whatever it is, it's all shaken out in this idea that you deny ungodliness, deny worldly desires, live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. And everything about what you're doing is waiting for Christ to return. So you're not embarrassed when he shows up and you're in the middle of doing stuff you shouldn't be doing. Everything's shaken out that way. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He redeemed us from all the things you've already done wrong, and that's now nailed to the cross, no longer on you. And now what? He wants you to live a life in purity, zealous for good deeds. And then he says to Titus, these things speak and exhort precisely the exact same command he gave to Timothy at the end of our passage. Preach and teach these things. Why? Because this is important. Get these into your sermons, Titus. And not only that, find out where it's happening. And he says, and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. This isn't an issue you just brush under the carpet. You take care of this. So here's the questions. And and I think it applies whatever situation you're in. I don't know them. I don't know even a fraction of them, okay? Do you want to see the church grow and the gospel go out in power? Do you want it to bring forth fruit? I will tell you, as we understand these two passages and the illustrations we just looked at, that that will start happening when our conduct in the workplace is brought into obedience to God's will, okay? It is the number one contact you have with the unredeemed world. When we begin to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and we begin to live in the light of the appearing of Christ, and we're not gossiping and backbiting and and being disrespectful, whatever it is, and zealous for good deeds, then the gospel begins to go out in power. See, then you have a foundation on which to give the gospel out. If you live and do what the world does in the workplace, and you spend your time around the coffee machine and the water uh, thing, and you just, you're talking bad about your employer, and you're saying negative things about what you have to do, and what somebody asked you to do, and whatever. How are you any different from the world, and how would you ever have a, a, something to stand on that would give you an opportunity to share the gospel? And if that's important to you, beloved, I would propose to you that there are very few things that should be more important than the Great Commission then that may require a complete shakeup in how we interact with those who are over us or switch it of those we are over. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So these are the things that are most important as we look at this passage and as we strike from our mind this understanding of slave master connected to American history, which is not this. Then we can see very clearly how this applies to us so beautifully. So that's my encouragement to you. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Father, we do thank you so much for our time together. We're grateful for our time in the Word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for, um, it's all about this. It's always about, it's always about the gospel going out. All of it's about testimony. When, when we disregard what the Word of God says, why would anybody else be interested in being a believer? So in this very real sense, we, most of us have changes we need to make. Most of it has things that we need to bring before you and ask for forgiveness. And then we need to be spirit-controlled as we go on from here. We might need to go and ask somebody for forgiveness. We might need to tell a coworker what you said was wrong. There's all kinds of things that start to fix this problem and then make the gospel go out in power. It doesn't give the gospel a black eye. It doesn't make the Lord look bad. 
And so, Lord, we thank you for, just make you look bad, we thank you so much for a blessing it is to, to know these things and because we know them to do them. And in that way, I'd be faithful servants waiting for the Master's return. Because it matters what we do. Because you say go and we go and you say come and we come and you say don't do that and we don't do it and you say do this and we do it. And when we've done all those things, Father, our duty as we should, we shouldn't expect some big high celebration. We're only unworthy slaves who've done what was required of us and that keeps our, keeps our uh, ego in check. So Father, do your work as you see fit, all for your gospel, for the power that could go out. The church may grow. Church grows when its people go out, equipped for every good work and do them. And then witness, the gospel looks good. People come to faith and the church grows. We thank you for these things. It's in your name that we pray them. We wait for Christ's return. It's our joy to expect him and we're so grateful that we have this hope. And in the meantime, help us to be about these things. We pray this in his name and all God's people said, Amen.